Good evening. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and I'm delighted to be your host uh, for this very special evening. I'd like to thank you all for joining us to celebrate moment, journalism, some brave and brilliant people. Moment is nearly 50 years old, and it has an illustrious history. Elie Wiesel and Leonard Fine uh, co-founded the magazine in 1975, and they named it after Der Moment, a popular Yiddish daily in Eastern Europe, where it was popular until the Nazis invaded Warsaw in 1939. In 1975, the world was very different. Uh, Anti-Semitism was not something that worried American Jews a great deal. Uh, as we all know, that's not the case today. Uh, Anti-Semitism is at an all-time high, uh, reaching epic uh, proportions uh, since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Videos and photos uh, claiming to show the conflict are flooding the internet, making it very difficult to uh, sort out fact from fiction, and more than ever, loud and often suspect voices are drowning out civil discourse and thoughtful debate. Uh, amid all this noise, Moment uh, is a trusted source of information where real thinking is going on. Uh, it's a place where we can count on uh, high-quality journalism, different points of view, thoughtful analysis. We'd like to start the evening uh, this year with a blessing for world peace uh, by Addis Israel's co-senior rabbi, Aaron Alexander. In the spirit of the awards that are being given tonight, I'd like to read a prayer for peace written by two mothers, Shika Ibtisam Mahmid and Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum, a Palestinian and a Jew, both living in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, praying for one another. God of life, who heals brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, may it be your will to hear the prayers of mothers. For you did not create us to kill each other, nor to live in fear, anger, or hatred in your world, but rather you have created us so we can grant permission to one another to sanctify your name in life, your name of peace in this world. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye runs down with water. For our children crying at nights, for parents holding their children with despair and darkness in their hearts, for a gate that is closing, and who will open it before the day has ended? And with my tears and prayers, which I pray, and with the tears of all women who deeply feel the pain of these difficult days, I raise my hands to you. Please, God, have mercy on us. Hear our voice that we shall not despair, that we shall see life in each other, that we shall have mercy for each other, that we shall have pity on one another, that we shall hope for each other. And we shall write our lives in the book of life for your sake, God of life. Let us choose life for you are peace, your world is peace, and all that is yours is peace, and so shall be your will. And let us say, Amen. The Moment community includes an array of brilliant journalists and literary contributors, and tonight we are honoring one of them, Dara Horn. She is receiving Moment Magazine's 2023 
Mitchell and Gloria Levitas Literary Journalism Award. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dara Horn. She's the author of six books, a three-time recipient of the National Jewish Book Award, and this year's honoree for Moments Literary Journalism Award. To help me introduce her, I have somebody very special. Cynthia Ozick, last year's honoree, sent me her thoughts, which I am delighted to read. Tonight, we are privileged to honor the magisterial Dara Horn. And Dara, how can I count the ways we know you? As a dedicated student at Harvard, you are not simply a pupil, but an outstanding disciple of Ruth Weiss, the sublime teacher who drew you into the riches of Yiddish language and literature. As a teacher yourself, in the broadest sense, you move and inform and augment the lives of your myriad of readers through Jewish scholarship, insight, and imaginative force. You are a novelist, not only of Jewish history, but also the history of Jewish ideas. And now you have ascended to the rarest pinnacle of all. You are what we learn to have called a public intellectual, an influential thinker who measures and illumines and forms our climate of thought. In the past, Jewish public intellectuals were prominent in the culture. Lionel Trilling, Irving Howe, Alfred Kazan, Susan Sontag, and so many others. But disparate though they were, what they had in common was solemnity. You, Dara, are a public intellectual who faces folly and makes people laugh. But you also make us think about who we are and where we are, and above all, why we are. And in an hour when these imperative defining questions press more than ever before our Jewish doubts, fears, anxieties, and the unaccustomed sense of being under siege in our exceptional America, you remind us with blazing clarity of the meaning of heritage and how it can strengthen us. A gala is a moment of celebratory gaiety, yes, but also of assessment. Yours is the crucial generation, the generation that is charged with bringing forth 100 more learned and impassioned and fearless Daras. In time, they will surely make themselves known, but meanwhile, we are grateful for this Dara Horn, whose very name resounds with the call of the chauffeur. Dara, congratulations. Call Hakavod Mazel Tov. I'm truly, truly honored to be here tonight, and I was not expecting uh, to be introduced in, in, uh, in absentia by Cynthia Ozek, um, who's, uh, whose work has been so influential on mine. Um, I remember discovering her work when I was 14 years old, and it reshaped my entire idea of what it could mean to be a Jewish writer in America. And this is true for a lot of what Moment has done as well. Um, in terms of um, cultivating literary voices in the Jewish community, and not only cultivating literary voices, but creating an audience for Jewish literature in America. And I am really honored to be here tonight and also to thank the Levitas family and to celebrate with a moment, of, which is, of course, a magazine that's been enhancing Jewish culture and sharing uncomfortable truths since the moment of its founding. Um, in addition to my novels, I am most recently the author of a book called People Love Dead Jews. 
and I still can't believe my publisher let me keep that title. And it's actually even worse than that. I have a podcast, a spinoff called Adventures with Dead Jews, and the, um, the, the, the production team and I are always joking about how we want to make merch. You know, like coffee mugs, tote bags, beach towels. No one's taking your seat at the pool with your people love dead Jews beach towel. And so as you can imagine, I'm a person who really likes making other people feel uncomfortable. And there's a real reason for that. That's because one of the things that I've learned in 20 years as an author, and specifically as a Jewish writer in America, is that the uncomfortable moments are always where the story is. Because that's when you're about to learn something that you might have gone your whole life not knowing. The, uh, Gloria and Michael Levitas both spent their lives and careers and are, are uh, push, uh, pushing at the comfort level of their readers, as of course Moment Magazine does as well, introducing readers and audiences to ideas that might make them uncomfortable, which is a way of saying that the Levitases and Moment all share a dedication to truth. The reason I want to bring up this idea of truth because in this moment where we find ourselves now in the Jewish community, I'm actually brought back to the, one of our traditional Jewish stories, which is a young Jewish story. It only goes back 500 years. The story of the golem. Um, the golem was, of course, this man of clay that was brought to life by this uh, 16th century rabbi to defend his community. And the way that the golem came to life was that the word mate, dead, was written in his forehead. And the way the rabbi brought, that would bring this golem to life was by adding the letter aleph to spell the word emet, meaning truth. So it is only tr uh, tr through truth that we can defend ourselves. We are here tonight only a week after, or less than a week after the Shloshim, the 30th day of mourning for the 1,400 people who were murdered in Israel. Of course, over 200 taken captive by an organization whose stated goal is the genocide of the Jewish people. It's not the first time the Jewish people have faced this threat. It traces back to ancient times. This story that we are all trapped in, this doom scrolling through horror, is very, very old. But what's new is that all of us are here. Everyone here is rejecting this delusional nightmare. Those of you from within the Jewish community are brave enough to not hide and to gather here, even with the threats that face us here. Those of you from beyond the Jewish community are standing beside us to say that you reject the world's oldest form of hatred and you stand with the Jewish people. And I, I want to just be really clear that that is who we are. We are the Jewish people. Um, I'm often asked when I speak around the country if Jews are a religion, if Jews are a nationality, if Jews are ethnicity. The reality is that Jews predate all of those categories. Non-Jewish communities have always, or non-Jewish societies have always tried to put Jews into whatever identity boxes they know best. But the reality is that Jews predate all of those boxes. We are Am Yisrael. We are a people with a shared homeland history and culture, and this is a civilization that is native to the land of Israel. The hatred that we're facing right now is very, very old, and its consistent through line is denial. Denial of the Jewish experience, whether it's Holocaust denial or the denial of our traditions or the denial of our roots in Israel, 
This is a denial of our reality in order to erase us, and people have been trying this for thousands of years, and it has yet to succeed. On the horrific weekend last month, I know every person in this room was doom-scrolling, but many of us were doom-scrolling through the oldest doom-scroll, which is the Torah. And when we got to the end of the Torah, we doom-scrolled back to the beginning of the Torah to read how all people are created in the divine image. And then we doom-scrolled to the sequel, where God says to Joshua the famous Hebrew words, chazak ve'ematz, be strong and courageous. So tonight, I am really honored to accept this award, but I want to offer to you in exchange the words of the God of our ancestors, Chazak ve'ematz, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous enough to keep going back to those uncomfortable places, those uncomfortable moments, to be curious and humble enough to learn what you don't yet know, and also to be curious and humble enough to learn what you don't yet know about specifically this timeless Jewish civilization that has inspired the world and has brought us all to this moment. Be strong and courageous as you carry forth with you the most uncomfortable truths, which include the reality of all human beings being created in the image of God. I want to say thank you to the Levitas family and to Moment for meeting this moment. Am Yisrael Chai, thank you. Bob Greenberger, a, a friend and a terrific journalist, passed away last year. He traveled the world reporting for the Wall Street Journal, and when he retired, he wrote for Moment and he helped Nadine create the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative to honor the memory of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, who was slain by terrorists in Pakistan in 2002. It's as important a project today as it was 13 years ago, maybe even more so, and I'm honored to serve on its advisory board. Five years ago, Moment and the Greenberger family, who are with us this evening, established an anti- well-deserved, uh, established an annual award in Bob's honor to recognize journalists who have fearlessly contributed to principled independent journalism. It has been given to Jake Tapper, Jane Mayer, Eben Osnos, Michelle Martin, Adam Serwer, and last year to Emily Bazelon. Before we present this year's award, Aaron David Miller is going to come to the podium and say a few words about his friend, Bob Greenberger. Bob sought to anchor his reporting in a deeper understanding that went way beyond the who, the what, and the when. And it's really rare in life when you meet someone who knows what they do not know and without self-consciousness and embarrassment make, it, make you aware of the fact that they are in a hurry to find it out. He felt deeply about things Middle Eastern, specifically about Israel and would have been horrified, I think, today by how quickly all of it had collapsed. He was no dreamer, but I guess I'd call him, to quote Jack Kennedy, an idealist without illusion. The arc of history often bends in strange and very unpredictable ways. Hoping is not enough. And Bob Greenberger would have agreed that it's up to us, to us, to work tirelessly and fearlessly to bend that arc of history 
in the right direction. I miss him, and so does everyone who is fortunate enough to cross his path. To Phyllis, to Peter, to Scott, and to Eric, and to all of you here tonight, may his memory be a blessing and a source of inspiration to all those who knew and who loved him. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, we are presenting this year's Robert S. Greenberger Award to Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She is in Poland and unable to be with us tonight, but uh, I was fortunate enough to interview Ann recently, and I want to share part of that interview with you uh, now. Uh, living in Europe, as you do, uh, you have not only been writing about the uh, rise of illiberal democracy or autocracy in recent years, uh, you've, you, you've been living through it, uh, uh, residing in, in Warsaw. There was recently an election in which a party in Poland, a party that favors closer ties with the European Union and uh, more democratic institutions, did well. Are things looking up for democracy in your neighborhood? So yes, they are. Um, I was uh, myself pleasantly surprised by the result of the last election. Uh, so we had in Poland uh, for the last eight years, a ruling party that that set out on a project of what you can only describe as state capture. So an attempt to take over institutions one by one, the media, state companies, but also the police, the prosecution service, and probably most importantly, the judiciary. Um, and there was a, a broad-based um, uh, opposition that was formed against it. Um, but you know, the the once once a once an autocratic populist party has captured institutions, they're able to put their narrative into almost everything and to make their arguments almost everywhere in a way that's very hard to compete with. Um, what we saw in Poland, I think, the the reason why. Um, you know, really, this was the last chance for for a democratic election in Poland. What we saw was a huge turnout of younger people and especially of younger women who had historically not voted in very high numbers in Poland. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it shows the way for a lot of uh, democratic parties. And um, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, this is actually the, the the victors in Poland were actually a center right party as opposed mm -hmm. to a far right party. So it's about the center right, the center left. Um, you know, democratic parties, it, it shows a way for them to defeat this populist wave, which there's a version of really in every country in, yes. in the democratic world now. And I just want to ask you a couple of questions about, about your worldview and uh, how, how you see your, so you would describe yourself as a, as, as a conservative, um, uh, part of which means uh, your it, 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 that entails a certain pessimism and and uh, a certain you would say realism I, I guess uh, do you think I, of yourself so I'm, as I'm a... not so I'm not sure the word conservative means what it used to mean I mean mm -hmm. I, I think I would probably now describe myself as a classical liberal um, mm -hmm. meaning I'm a John Stuart Mill kind of liberal you right. know using the the European definition of the word. Um, rather than I don't know the word liberal also has become diluted and it means different things and. Yeah. and you know, in, in different places as well. Um, you know, and, and I wouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a pessimist. I mean, I, I think real realistic about human nature, um, you know, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I try and look at the world as it is and not as I would like it to be. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I believe in a certain kinds of balance, you know, that, that, that there, you know, there has to be um, a level of competition, political competition within society, which is necessary to preserve freedom. Um, I believe in, you know, balance of powers and separation of powers. Um, I believe in, um, you know, in, in a, in, in a, in, in rational debate as much as it can be encouraged, if we can find still ways to, 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 to do that. Um, and all of those things are are actually under threat in the modern world. Some from some from political movements, and some from the nature of of modern technology. Um, I, I, pe- pessimism is a harsh word, actually. Um, I'm going to adopt something that um, you know one a friend of mine once described. Madeline Albright used to describe herself as an optimist who worries a lot. So maybe I'll maybe I'll stick to that. <laughs> Well, Anne, you know, you, you're you're talking to people who have read your books, read your 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 columns, uh, your articles in 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 the in the Atlantic, uh, and um, uh, you have many admirers uh, in uh, uh, the Moment community, and it's uh, it's 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 been fascinating hearing from you. And congratulations again on on your winning the Greenberger Award. Thank you so much. I'm genuinely grateful, very honored, uh, and I look forward to seeing you all when I'm next in Washington. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a dear friend of Nadine's and Moment. She received Moment's first Human Rights Award in 2019, and after her death, we named this award in her honor. It is my pleasure to announce that the 2023 recipient of this year's Ruth Bader Ginsburg Human Rights Award is Justice Dorit Benish. Appointed in September 2006, after the retirement of Aharon Barak, she was the first woman to serve as president of Israel's Supreme Court. As a justice, she ruled in numerous cases relating to human rights, minority rights, terrorism, and national security. In all her decisions, she stressed the importance of protecting the rights of women, children, and the most vulnerable members of society. Justice Bennis was a friend and colleague of Justice Ginsburg. She had planned to be here, but given the terrible turn of events in Israel, felt she could not leave at this time. Nadine interviewed Justice Benish last week, and we're going to share a clip of that interview with you all now. First of all, I'm thankful for the award, and I appreciate what you are doing. And I think that now we realize more than in the past how important it is to hear the Jewish voice, the Jewish journal, the Jewish people involved in everything, in our life, in political life, in society life, and you represent it with your moment. So this is a moment of importance in moment, I think so. I know from talking to Justice Ginsburg that she was very concerned about the Israeli Supreme Court. And I know that that's not front and center right now, but I would love for you to explain to us why the court is so important in Israel, which, as you've mentioned, does not have a constitution. That's the first reason. I mean, very important the issue in Israel. She was very much concerned about it, really. She knew she she knew our judgments. She knew and she liked it and she appreciated what we do. But the role of the Supreme Court in Israel is important more than in any other democratic country. I don't know how much you followed what happened here in the last year about the independence of the court, but this became an issue, a very important issue. We have no, actually, not only not a written constitution, 
the power of the executive here is very strong and the system of government is so that through a coalition, the regime is in the hands of the executive who need a majority in our Knesset, in our parliament, so they can control legislation, they can control whatever the executive does. No judicial review, no other review, no constitutional limits. So the court represents really the limits of power, the power to review what a government does. I think this is so important and one of the really diff most difficult year that Israel had before the war was the fight to keep the status and the supremacy of the Supreme Court and its power because it's the only guarantee that we have for human rights actually. Every legislation could be changed by the Knesset. With no review, they can do everything. Politicians, the rule of the majority without anything to protect minorities is a serious threat to the society, to a democratic society. And this was the issue in the last year that we fought so much to achieve. And while this happened now, no one knows what will be our future. I believe that we will we we will overcome it with success. I believe so. What's it like in Israel for everyone right now after the October 7th attack and during this war? October 7th, our world changed completely. For us, this is something that we don't even understand how terribly, uh, what a catastrophe it was. Catastrophe that happened by surprise, that changed everything. We're in the midst of a very, very difficult war. This was such a cruel attack, such a terrible attack. I have no words to describe it, and no one can describe what happened in Israel on the Saturday, the 7th of October. It's not the same thing. And now people are really, the atrocities are terrible. Families killed, so many victims, I'm not, of course, you know, a kidnapping of, of civil, civilians, children, women, elderly people. It's, it's something that we cannot even grasp and understand how, how could it be? And this is a situation we didn't believe that we'll be in. So many wounded, so many victims, so many people hurt. And it's not over yet. It's not over. The war is going on in Gaza. We don't know how it will go. You've been a champion of democracy, of Israel's democracy. And do you do you see or foresee that this war, this the attack, the war, will strengthen Israel's democracy after the war, or during the war? I believe so. I think that people, most of the people, realize now the price that we paid for not protecting the rule of democracy, our democracy, taking more, too much emphasis on issues that are not that important on expense of keeping our democracy. I think people realize it now. We paid a lot for that. I believe it will, will get up with a new situation where we understand the real importance of a democracy with a liberal society and with a 
an independent court. I really think that this is one of the most important things after we achieve, of course, peace and, and really find solutions for the practical things that we have now to find, our economy, the situation of people, to build a country from the beginning in certain areas, which is really unbelievable, but this is what we have to do. And a better society then. This is my hope. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today, even, even by Zoom. We're so grateful and we're so delighted to give you this award. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nadine. And all the best. And I hope you succeed in what you're doing now. And remember us here in Israel. We are with you. You are with us. Eric K. Ward is one of those people who moves through the world with authenticity and deep kindness, who sees through all the chaff and finds clarity and helps others find it too. I know this because I've been honored to work with him. For several years, Eric and I have been co-hosts of Moment's Wide River Project, produced by Moment Live. Together, we've been exploring the complexities and challenges of the American Black and American Jewish relationship. As Eric likes to say, leading deep into the complexities, even when they're not politically correct, is how we learn about one another and grow. This matters to both of us because the bonds as complicated as they are at times between American Blacks and American Jews are, are a pillar of American democracy, something we don't wanna lose. So thank you, Eric, for all you've done for the world, for a moment, and for me. My mom who passed a little over a decade ago used to tell me as I uh, traveled around the Pacific Northwest in the country often attending uh, anti-Semitic meetings hosted by uh, white nationalists. You might wonder how I got into those meetings. <laughs> but she would, I'm gonna answer that in a second, but she would say, the further away you are from home, the more well-behaved you should be because I won't be there to get you out of trouble. Now I got into those meetings because at the core, of uh, white nationalism is anti-Semitism. It's not a part of it. It is the core philosophy that drives that movement. But the truth is, is that white nationalists, as I came to learn very quickly, didn't bring anti-Semitism into our communities. It merely organized the anti-Semitism that already existed. Those many decades ago, traveling the backwoods of rural America and urban centers, I learned one truth. There is no left-wing anti-Semitism. There is no right-wing anti-Semitism. There is merely anti-Semitism and how political formations and tendencies choose to consciously or unconsciously tap into it. There was another lesson as well, that by tackling anti-Semitism, we could inoculate our communities from an age-old conspiracy that sought to conflate the complex problems and relationships into our society into a bigoted theory that Jews controlled the world 
and sought to destroy the human race. Anti-Semitism has been used not only to attack the Jewish community, but also non-Jewish communities. I think of mass killings here in the United States, the attacks on Latinos in El Paso and Gilroy, California, attacks on African Americans in Charleston, South Carolina, and Buffalo, New York, and of course the attacks on the Jewish community in places like Pittsburgh and, and others. One truth became clear. While certainly racism, xenophobia, and anti-Jewish hatred drove those mass shootings, at their core, each killer believed that they were waging a war against the Jewish community, and that we as black people and immigrants were nothing more than puppets being pulled on the strings of our Jewish masters. The truth was, Anti-Semitism denies the legitimate grievances of marginalized communities in this country and flattens it to nothing more than a conspiracy to be ignored. This is why I've chosen to take on anti-Semitism, not as an ally, but because I recognize that black liberation, the right to live free from fear and bigotry in this country, does not happen except through the liberation of all people. And that means taking anti-Semitism on head first. It's been an honor to work with folks like Sarah and Tanya in the room, who model each and every day the importance of building these relationships before we get into moments of tension, before we are in our feelings, so that when we sit around the table, we understand we must stay at the table, that it is a time for serious leadership in this country and outside the country. I'm honored to sit here and to receive this award in my last few minutes from Moment Magazine. The Wide River Project has been a place where we can model what it looks like to disagree and still be committed to moving forward together. There is not this kind of serious leadership in our country and in the world right now. The truth is always, we don't make peace with our friends. We make peace with our enemies. And to make peace with our enemies means seeing each other's humanity even in the hardest moments. Thank you to the staff of Moment Magazine who work with me throughout the year, mostly trying to track me down on the road, <laughs> and who do so with grace and kindness as we try to explore these topics. I also want to thank everyone in this room. We are all part of a movement that seeks to build a society where everyone has the right to live, love, worship, and work free from fear and bigotry. I'm not going to speak a long time, but I do want to say this. In these days, let us remember it is not our job to be walking memes. 
It is not our job to simplify things. Let us be the serious leadership that brings complexity and nuance, that demands the question for more information, not less. Let our debates strengthen democracy, not weaken it. Let us always think about what is next and how we get to that next together. The truth is this, when I was a kid, we used to play a game, if I were, if we were driving down the freeway and the brakes went out, here's what I would do. If we were in the zoo and the lion got out of the cage, here's what we would do. And as kids, we would argue about what we would or wouldn't do. The question that came up every year was if I were in the midst of the 1960s civil rights movement, here's what I would do. And as kids, we were full of bravado. We didn't understand the choiceless choices of our parents and grandparents in the same way that it's hard to understand the choiceless choices of those who found themselves in the midst of the Holocaust. We were sure about what we would or wouldn't do. And we would argue. That question, what would I have done if I were, has always haunted me. Ten years ago, I realized I no longer had to wonder what I would do in that moment. And I'm here to tell you tonight, neither do you. The truth is that we are in a moment that isn't about left or right, or conservative and liberal, or Democrat or Republican. It is a question of inclusion versus exclusion. It is about moving forward together are battling our world into a disaster through silos. I'm here to tell you, whatever it is you would have done in the midst of the civil rights movement will be whatever it, you do when you walk out of these doors tonight. If we only do one thing, let us stand in solidarity, even in disagreement, even in the hardest days, let us understand it is time for humanity to lean in together. Moment Magazine represents that public space. So when we walk out of this room today, let us make one commitment. Let us commit to holding this space where we can come together to disagree and to love. I'm sorry for your losses. I'm sorry for the pain and the horror that is occurring in this world right now, that is occurring in Israel and Palestine. But understand, in the hardest, in the hardest, in the best days, I will continue to stand in the room with you. Thank you, Moment Magazine. It's an honor. Well, now uh, it's time for Moment's Community Leadership Award. Esther Safran Four. Uh, <laughs> Esther helped transform Sixth and I into what it is today, uh, and she's now working that same magic as chair of the new uh, Lillian and Albert Small Capital Jewish Museum. Uh, she's also the author of uh, I Want You to Know We're Still Here, a post-Holocaust memoir, uh, but as she often says, her biggest accomplishment is her family along with a bit of help from her husband, Bert, uh, who 
also serves on Moment's board. Uh, it's actually, I must say, a tremendous honor uh, for Frank and I to be here tonight to acknowledge this extraordinary hard-earned recognition, truly a lifetime in the making, of us <laughs> having been selected as our mother's two favorite sons to introduce her tonight. Uh, seriously, Jonathan uh, wishes he could be here. He had a conflict and he sends his regrets. <laughs> which I am certain mom will be duly noted in the next draft of your will. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sorry uh, he was unable to deliver his uh, hip hop operetta tribute that was uh, written in the form of Limerick uh, to mom. Um, uh, because this is Washington, you'll have to show some generosity in the face of name dropping. Um, but my mother and I were once sitting in the green room of Six and I with Tom, Tom Friedman, and before he was about to speak, he leaned over and he told me, what I love about your mother is that she's the ultimate Jewish mother. And I think his implication is that Esther Four is more than just my mother or Josh's mother, or you wouldn't know it from his absence, Jonathan's mother. <laughs> um, but she's played that role for a broader world. Whether we wanted to share her or not, we didn't have a choice. She was born a refugee and spent her earliest years in a displaced persons camp. And she remembered the older woman who lived on the other side of the plywood in the barracks where she lived, who showered her with sweets, toys, and kindness. And every time she's had a chance to re reciprocate that kindness to her fellow refugees, she seized it. When we were kids, three generations of newly arrived Soviet Jews um, came in the middle of the night and lived in our basement for weeks. Then in 2021, a family of eight Afghans, the youngest of them one month old, became the residents of my parents' house. And our mother remains a maternal figure, a mother for Muslim girls and Russian Jewish twins. When the Washington Jewish community, within the Washington Jewish community, she's assumed that role too. In each institution she's led, she's bestowed her young rabbis, cultural programmers, and curators with a boundless sense that they can accomplish anything. And for the Jewish people of the city, she's shown that same nurturing love and glowing warmth, infusing the cultural and spiritual infrastructure of this city with her own overbrimming vitality. And she's only used her capacity for inducing guilt on the donor class. <laughs> so in a sense, we're the surrogates for all of you, since we're the biological beneficiaries of the gifting, gifted mothering that she has touched you all with. Mom, you nourish everyone around you with your creativity and your vision, and we couldn't be luckier to have learned at your feet and to rely daily on your wisdom. You're a model of how to live a life of leadership and generosity for your family, for your community, and for the Jewish people. Sharing your love is our pride, and we couldn't fail any harder. I will check your photo. We can, we can um, use um, Photoshop to put Jonathan's face in. <laughs> Just like our New Year's cards. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I was going to. Now I'll get serious. Um, very serious. These are difficult times for the Jewish world. And I'm grateful that we can be here today, tonight, as a community. As my boy said, my parents were Holocaust survivors, the sole survivors of their large families in Europe. I am, like everyone in this room, almost petrified by the pervasive sense of deja vu. I found out this morning that one of the hostages, 19-year-old IDF soldier Itai Chen, a dual American-Israeli citizen, is actually the nephew of one of my cousins. So, for so many of us, it's become very personal. In the midst of this tragedy, however, we need to express gratitude wherever we can. So let me do a little bit of that. To Nadine and the team at Moment, thank you for this recognition. Thank you even more for the work you do day in and day out to produce a magazine and a platform that encourages progress and understanding in all sectors of Jewish community life. Thank you. To my family, two of those three young men. <laughs> Is he watching this? And the terrific women who became daughters in my life and the seven beautiful grandchildren that have been made part of our family. You bring me joy, you bring me optimism, and you bring me new wisdom every day. And to my husband, Bert, my husband for over half a century. Who can believe that? Yes. Who has supported and encouraged me in everything, even some of the crazy projects I've taken on, and who has truly made me a better person. Thank you, Bert. And to my late mother, who modeled strength and resilience and taught us always to look forward without fear, to be creative and to take risks. And to the people with whom I've had the privilege to work, some of whom are here, over a long and varied career. I'll just tell you briefly, I was a late bloomer. Just about the time people decide to retire, after a long professional life in public relations, I knew I wanted and needed a second act, something personally fulfilling. By luck, I happened to become involved in Sixth and I, as its founders, who had just purchased the old Addis Israel, were trying to figure out what to do with that historic building. One thing led to another, and I had what was for me the opportunity of a lifetime to become its full-time CEO for a decade. After I finally sort of retired, I took the time to reflect on my family's history and wrote a memoir whose title was, and it's poignant today, I want you to know we're still here. Then came the opportunity to help open the new Lillian and Albert Small Capital Jewish Museum. What I found working during those years, working in and around the Jewish community, has been a fulfillment of my life's passion. Just as supporting Moment Magazine has been the fulfillment of a passion of a lot of people in this room. 
So thank you all, and even in these dark days, I cherish my mother's optimism about the future. Thank you. Everyone knows that women are needed more than ever in the top echelons of decision-making in journalism and politics and diplomacy uh, and every other field. And to help recognize those who are blazing uh, trails, Moment established an award in 2017. Uh, last year it was given to Oksana Mark uh, Markarova, Ukraine's ambassador to the US. Uh, she was the first recipient of the Women in Power Award. Uh, the Jewish world also needs more women uh, leaders, and tonight we're delighted to honor one of them. Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt is... <laughs> Rabbi Holtzblatt is co-senior rabbi here at uh, the uh, largest conservative synagogue in the D.C. area, and she is the co-creator of two uh, nationally recognized community engagement projects, Makom DC and the Jewish Mindfulness Center of Washington. Uh, she gained national uh, recognition uh, when she officiated at the funeral of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She has been called one of the most inspiring rabbis in the nation and also named one of Jewish Women International's Women to Watch. Uh, before I invite Rabbi Holtzblatt to the podium, uh, there is someone else who has a very special message for her. Hi everyone, second gentleman, Doug Emhoff here. I wanna congratulate my good friend, Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt. I'm receiving Moment Magazine's 2023 Woman and Power Award. This award pays tribute to women who use their power for good, who speak up in the face of injustice and fight for the rights of everyone. And I can't think of a more deserving recipient. Rabbi Holzblatt, the Vice President and I have had the honor and the pleasure of building a close and meaningful relationship with you over these past few years. We spent time together at Temple where we've attended your services and where I've spoken too. We've tuned in to watch you and you've also spoken at our home and we've kept in close touch all throughout. Your guidance and example have been a driving force for my role as Second Gentleman. It's helped me find my own voice on combating anti-Semitism and hate. I'm also grateful for your steady leadership and counsel in these times of adversity. The past several weeks have been marked by violence, pain, and uncertainty, but you have been steadfast in your empathy, understanding, and willingness to listen. The work you're doing will create a brighter future for us all in Jewish communities and beyond. You're an incredible leader, and I'm honored to call you my friend. Congratulations. As we celebrate, and we should, I want to make mention of the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Israel and Gaza. There are 240, maybe 60 souls from 33 countries buried somewhere beneath Gaza right now. We need to keep the pressure on to bring these souls home. Call the White House, call every day. We have friends there and they are listening, but they need to hear us every single day. I wanna beg you to come back here tomorrow night 
Rachel and John Goldberg-Polin are going to be speaking about their beloved son, Hirsch, 23 years old, a lover of peace, a lover of music, a lover of travel, a lover of relationship. He has been gone for over 30 days, and they are going to be telling their story here tomorrow night. Please, please, please come back. Tonight, I'm honored to stand among such an incredible group of human beings, of honorees. I want to share a few lessons from my own journey. Number one, surround yourself with people who believe in you and push you. As I grew up, I watched my own mother build a business, raise three girls as a single mother, fall and rise again and again. She set this notion in my head that anything was possible and that the world would tell me no, but I should never take that for an answer. I was blessed to find a life partner who saw my gifts as something that needed to be unleashed in the world. I remember the first time I was quoted in a newspaper in rabbinical school. You remember this? <laughs> I had been organizing with the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union in the West Village. We were fighting for higher wages, and the Wall Street Journal wrote a derogatory article about the work and me. I was so upset because I like to be liked. <laughs> and uh, my now husband, Ari, said to me at the time, this is a success. You are making noise and moving something important in the world, and not everyone is going to like it. And he was right. Number two, don't take no for an answer. Once in the rabbinate, I heard from those who had come before me again and again, you can't have it all. Desperate to create a family, but also find a way to be of service to the Jewish community, there were a lot of no's. A present mom and a professional? Nah. Two serious career professionals in one house? Someone has to focus on the kids. A pulpit rabbi where you give your life to a place that you still, and you still want to be there for your kids? Wait till they're older. But like my mentor, Justice Ginsburg, I had to learn not to listen to those outside voices and to muffle through the noise to find myself. I can do this. I found a work partner from across the country and not knowing what our future would hold, I believed I had to get him to DC. It wasn't easy. <laughs> when the time came for a new senior rabbi at Addis, we took a big risk and applied together as partners and believed this model could help reshape the rabbinate to be a more inclusive paradigm where more people can envision themselves being able to step into this role by sharing the burden and the joy. And now we need to create that pipeline. <laughs> Number three, lovingly correct the inability, lovingly correct their inability to see you. I've had to have a lot of grace for the world that many times has not been ready for a more inclusive leadership. Right before I conducted the ceremony for Justice Ginsburg at the Supreme Court, I was sent to the C-SPAN crew to get a lapel mic for the ceremony, knowing that I was about to go live for the world. The sound tech looked at me, and he had two mics in his hand, and he said, hi. One of these mics is for the chief justice, and one of these mics is for the rabbi. 
So having been in the position to reshape an image many times before in my life, I smiled. I turned my head so lovingly and I said, you're looking at the rabbi. And number four, help the next generation. One of the things that has been harder for me in this role has been to find mentors. Mentors who have stood on pulpits while pregnant or miscarrying. Mentors who have had a particular pull to be home with their kids, but also knowing they needed to take risks. Showing up at rallies, using their voices and platforms when it was not easy and maybe sometimes even dangerous. I have been blessed beyond words, beyond words, with colleagues who are doing this with me at the same time, where we can lean on each other and push each other and sometimes even give each other permission to sit one out. And I am undyingly committed to being a mentor for the next generation of leaders, to help clear a path to make room for a more inclusive leadership, women, men, non-binary, trans, the disability community, our brothers and sisters who are of, of color in this community, because the more pluralistic we are, the more space we make for different kinds of leadership, the more we will fix this very broken world. So let's build this world with love. <laughs> Olam chesed yibanei, yananai, 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 yananai